Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Welcome to another episode of our Momenta podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta, and today our guest is Professor Sandra Klaus, who is a uh, prof- professor of big data ecosystems at the University of Amsterdam and also a partner in charge of big data and analytics uh, for KPMG in the Netherlands. Uh, he's been doing quite a lot of work around the, uh, the, the concept and the need for ethical frameworks around big data analytics. And we're really excited to be able to dive into the topic and, and hear a bit more uh, about the work he's doing. Uh, Professor, it's, it's, it's great to have you join us. Thank you very much. Fantastic. So just as a, as a, just to set the stage with a bit of context, could you share a bit of your background and what was, you know, what, what have been the core experiences that have led you to, uh, led you down your, your current path and, and the current interest in big data and analytics? Yeah, I started to write about big data and advanced analytics a couple of years ago. I wrote a book called We Are Big Data, uh, where I was basically emphasizing the enormous impact of data and the analysis of data on our society. Um, and and the, the key message of that book is in the title, of course. We, we actually want this, right? Um, and then, of course, in the years that followed, you could see all kinds of side effects that, that came with this data analysis. And uh, privacy was one of the, the most uh, familiar ones Uh, that became a discussion, but there are others like discrimination and reliability. So, uh, yeah, these these situations led to to people distrusting the results of of algorithms. And and, uh, that, for me, was a very interesting uh, notion. So uh, we wrote a report about it at KPMG. It's called Guardians of Trust. And there were quite some shocking results coming out of that. uh, For example, it said that over 90% of the executives didn't have trust in the analysis that was done in their own organization. Um, so in my new book, then I started to think about how do you actually do that? How do you build trust in such a smart society? And, uh, and there I'm discussing what the potential solutions are. And, and interestingly enough, people talk about solutions in terms of uh, we need to make better algorithms or we need to become more transparent about transparent about the algorithms we use, or um, we need to explain better what an algorithm does, and then people will probably start trusting it. But that's not, not how trust works. So trust typically comes from experience, right? Um, and then experience builds reputation, and then reputation builds brands. I always compare it to a pack of milk that you buy in the supermarket, and, and you look at the expiry date, and, and you trust the expiry date, and the question is why, because nobody actually ever researches how that date was calculated. You trust it because you buy a pack of milk of a certain brand, and then you trust the brand and the reputation of that brand because you have had many positive experiences with that, with that brand. So so if, if that's how trust works, uh, then uh, you need to start doing something else, something that, that we are very familiar with at KPMG from an accountancy background. 
And so, so I started putting the, the edges together, and 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 then I I thought let's come up with a different method actually to to build trust. So this is how I I got my inspiration on on working on on building trust in a smart society. Going even further back, um, in my early stages of my career, I was a high energy physicist. So I worked for 15 years on on the experiments at CERN in Geneva. Um, I was colliding protons together. It was actually the, the highest energies that we are able to make as human beings. We are, we are making there by colliding these protons together. And uh, I was part of the Atlas collaboration that was uh, searching the Higgs boson. Uh, and we found it in 2012. It, uh, it led to, uh, to the Nobel Prize for Peter Higgs in, in 2013. And Atlas is really an analysis factory, you know. It's, it's, it's almost like an industrial approach, if you want, to science. There's three and a half thousand physicists working on that experiment. So that level of professionalism, that's something that I, that I still carry with me, and, and it, it helps me to understand what the difference is between a proof of concept where you try to demonstrate an idea uh, compared to a production environment where, where the performance of an organization can really depend on, on the outcome of algorithms. So you need something very different. Uh, in an environment, in an industrial environment, uh, than you need in a in a tiny exper- experimental environment. I think these are the things that that shape me most. Uh, could you talk about what could you know what can go wrong? What are some of the issues that uh, that face us when when we're when we're dealing with uh, with algorithms? I mean, I would. Uh, you can think abstractly about this, but uh, you know, are there are there some uh, common examples or prominent examples that would um, uh, you know that could really illustrate what you know what can go wrong with uh, uh, with poorly designed analytics or uh, or or predictive algorithms? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I actually. And did some work on that. It's, it's, I wouldn't call it scientific work, but at a certain point, uh, what I did was I was collecting headlines from the news of, of everything that, that went wrong with, with data or with analytics. Uh, and, and then I tried to, to put them in, in several topics. And it turns out that, that you can sort of arrange them in, in six topics. Um, so the first one is, is a very familiar one. It's cybersecurity related. So something gets hacked, and then information gets out on the street, um, and it's something that was is already around for a long time, right? It's it's not something you immediately associate with things like big data or artificial intelligence, but it is evolving uh, in an age of big data and artificial intelligence. The, the accidents, the incidents are are becoming more impactful, if you want. Um, the other one is something that is also quite uh, familiar to uh, to us. It's uh, data governance uh, related. Um, so uh, think think about who has to, uh, who can do what with the data and who can do what with an analysis. And also there, that's a very common, uh, common topic that we already know from the past. Um, but what you see is now that, that data and analysis is, is actually stretching further than the boundaries of an organization. And it becomes harder and harder to decide who can do what with data. So you see typical mistakes there uh, that involve, for example, a business developer that has this cool new idea of what can be done with data and then starts implementing it 
And it turns out that uh, the clients of, of, of that organization don't expect it. Uh, we had an incident here in the Netherlands with a navigation system uh, provider, and uh, that data uh, showed up at the National Police, who in turn started to optimize their radar controls based on that data. Um, so, so even though the business model there is is interesting, you you have data as a navigation system provider that the police is interesting interested in, so you can build a new business model around it. Uh, they didn't consider the side effect of that when that would actually get out there and what the impact would be on the sales of these navigation systems. Um, so here you can see a typical example of of a data management issue. Somebody had responsibility over data, and it was not properly evaluated. Uh, that that didn't exist in in pre big data pre artificial intelligence uh, times. Also, the third one is is very familiar. It's IT architecture related stuff. And what you see there is that because we are now living in a world where where we have the Internet of Things and and devices are uh, in our daily lives and are touching our daily lives uh, many times during the day, um, things like maintenance and system upgrades, things that you typically associate with with servers in a basement, now become something that can affect your daily lives. If you have a smart thermostat in your room or if you have a smart lock on your door and uh, firmware upgrade fails, then the impact is, is completely different than uh, when, it, when it actually hits a server in the, in the server room of your office. Um, so these three are, are sort of classical things that, that evolve, but there's no revolution around them. And the other three themes that you see, uh, there are much bigger steps if, if you want. Uh, and, and usually they are grouped together under ethics, but I don't think they are all ethics related. So, so one of them is more reliability, I would say. Um, so think about how good does an algorithm actually need to be before uh, you can deploy it in, in real life? Does it need to be just as good as when a human being would be doing that task, a self-driving car? Does it, can it cause any accidents? Because humans are causing accidents. So, so what is the criterion for the algorithm? Um, and the other thing is uh, um, the, the, the interaction type of uh, aspects of it. Uh, I remember that uh, uh, there was a while ago, there was an experiment in the US where uh, the Amazon Alexa was put in a classroom. And it turned out that uh, that kids started to talk to uh, Amazon Alexa in very clear commands, which is, of course, what Alexa responds best to. But they also started to interact with each other in clear commands, which is an unforeseen side effect uh, and something that you probably don't want uh, with your kids. Uh, which is why uh, Amazon put um, uh, the, the magic word mode on the Alexa. So it only responds if you say please, and it only responds to the next question if you said thank you for the previous answer. And like that, you can actually influence behavior uh, in a positive way, or at least that's, that's the objective. And then the last category is, is probably what you would really refer to as ethics. Um, this is something that I, I learned through a conversation I had with uh, one of the heads, with the head psychiatrist of the University Medical Center of uh, Utrecht, which is a city here in the Netherlands. Um, and I asked her, you know, now that you have a computer that gives you advice on the treatment of a patient, that must make you feel uncomfortable as a, as a doctor because you don't actually understand completely what's behind that advice that's coming from the, uh, from the computer. And she said, well, actually, that's, that's not 
the biggest problem I have um, because currently I'm also using research from my colleagues and and that's also something that I might not completely understand because I wasn't involved in that research, but I still use their advice and their answers. So it's not for me, it's not much difference if I don't completely understand the advice from my colleague, but I still use it in my treatments or if it comes from a computer. Just the, big difference, the biggest difference is, is that this computer gives me completely new insights, predictable insights. It will tell me, for example, that a patient uh, will become violent within the next 24 hours. And she gave an example where there are cases where there is over 80% confidence uh, in that computer system that the patient actually becomes violent within 24 hours. And then the question becomes, what do I do with that information? Of course, you tell the patient, but, but the patient can respond in different ways. The patient can say, well, um, I don't feel like I'm getting violent at all, so I'm probably part of the other 20%, right? And then should you should you be able to force somebody to take his medicine? And, and if they don't take the medicine uh, and they do become violent, then that probably has a huge impact on the nurses that are treating that patient. Uh, because if you look at the history and, and nurses that interact with patients that become violent, that's incidents that, that have a heavy impact on them and, and lead to a time off, significant time off before they can get back into business. So uh, do you tell these people that, that there is this score, even though it's not a 100% score, which will in turn, of course, trigger behavior with them, which will have a response on the patient again. So, so you get into this whole loop of all kinds of ethical situations that you now suddenly have to take into account. And the interesting thing is that, that you cannot even, even avoid it. Eh? You have to take ethical decisions here because the technology is available. So even if you would decide not to use the technology, that's already an ethical decision. So if the technology is not there, there's no ethical choice to make. But as soon as it, it there is, every doctor has to make ethical decisions around this topic. That's uh, what's very interesting. No, that's fascinating. And I wanted to... Uh turn back to the findings of, of the, you know, the trust and analytics study that was rather surprising, I guess, the, the lack of awareness of the of potential risks. And I would love to get your insights on, you know, what, you know, what, what, what you see as the disconnect between, uh, on one hand, we have an enormous, uh, you know, a, a wave of, of interest and reliance on analytics. And if you go back 10 years, right, to Tom Davenport competing on analytics and Moneyball, and in many respects, the, um, the you know, the vision of, of applying analytics for, uh, you know, for better business results, um, you know, courses all the way through, uh, you know, GE's industrial, the industrial internet and the internet of things. Um, but then on the flip side is, as you're, uh, as you as you've highlighted, there are you know real disconnects between how much trust you put in the systems uh, and then an awareness that there you know that there are risks that are that people are are not aware of. Um, you know, number one, uh, how do you you know how do you assess the kind of the level of awareness of risk and and, and what are some some steps? That that may need to be taken, in your view, to uh, really to, to raise awareness and, and help close close some of these uh, these gaps. Yeah, so, uh, in my opinion, um, I mean algorithms are all around us, and they are so embedded in our daily lives that, that 
sometimes you don't even notice it anymore. Uh, there's even a term for it. It's it, it, we call it invisible barbed wire, and and and. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good term. It, yeah, it, it, it's like a barbed wire that is sort of guiding you through life, right? Without us even noticing that it's that is there. And maybe what's wrong about that phrase is that the barbed wire is not completely invisible yet. Um, sometimes you realize that that you're impacted by an algorithm in a way you don't like. Um, I always like the example of the, the navigation system that is, for example, sending you into a one-way street from the wrong direction. And at that moment, you're, you're really frustrated with your navigation system and you're feeling, really feeling annoyed. And that annoyance that you're feeling, that's actually the barbed wire. It's an, it's an algorithm that is trying to impact your decision-making in a way that you don't like. But if you give it five years, if you give it 10 years, then that annoyance is gone. Then these algorithms have developed beyond that point. And then the, the, the barbed wire is really invisible. And for me, that means that we, that we are really living in a crucial moment in time. Um, we are the generation that needs to think about uh, the autonomy in decision-making. What decisions do we want to make ourselves? And what decisions we are fine with if they are taken over by algorithms or technology. Um, and I think there are a couple of decisions that, that you probably want to take yourself. Think about political decisions or, or partner choice. And even there, you, you already know that you're impacted by algorithms. But at least you want to know that you're impacted and how you're, who you're, how you're impacted. But, yeah, as I said, we are the generation that, that has to... Um, define what the boundaries are there and, and how we are going to make sure that uh, that the algorithms that are implemented comply with these uh, with these boundaries you, you don't have the option to step out huh? it's not that you can say let's let's not do this this is part of who we are it's part of society it's developing with society it's almost like language and so you cannot say i'm well, language can be used to do harm, so let's not use language. It's, it's just there, and you have to deal with it, and you have to make the most of it. And, and the same hope for, for algorithms and technology in the way that we deal with it in our daily lives. So, um, yeah, the, 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 the approach that we chose is, is, of course, very closely associated with uh, the approach that we have also seen in financial statements. Uh, about 100 years ago, we had similar situations around financial statements. Uh, basically, uh, there were mistakes in financial statements that, that led to distrust in society about these financial statements. And that's how the audit function uh, appeared. So you need an independent auditor that actually looks at these financial statements and, and uh, you need a framework to put in place uh, that shows that you are in control of how you built that uh, financial statement. And then that's something we are developing right now, and we have developed over the years, but we will be developing it further over the, the next uh, years. Uh, how do you actually put such a, a controlled environment in place? And, and what kind of uh, checks and balances do you need? And there's quite some similarities. I mean, the mechanisms that, that you use for, for uh, auditing financial statements, they are similar to what you also need to have in place if you want to uh, to have a look at algorithms. Uh, think about uh, materiality or relevance or uh, the 4i principle where you have independence between the review that is done and the, and the person that actually built the algorithm. Or uh, three lines of defense where you have an operational layer and a risk management layer and then a 
uh, internal or external audit layer. And they are just as applicable to financial statements as they are to, to algorithms. Um, so yeah, I, I think we can, we can learn from uh, what, what, what has been done in, in financial statement audits, and we can try to uh, create similar frameworks and apply them to algorithms as well. That's a, a really fascinating uh, com well, comparison, and uh, I hadn't thought about it that way. But it makes it makes perfect sense. Uh, a framework of generally accepted uh, accounting principles or IFRS principles. But I'd be interested to get your uh, your your perspective on you know what what components or or, or uh, what inputs one would. Uh, need to really to build a uh, an effective framework that can be applied in uh, you know in in different situa in different situations and i guess i'm i'm asking uh whether you you might need different frameworks for really different applications whether you're doing op you know an operational audit versus a uh of of an autonomous system versus say a, a hiring system where there are people involved or uh uh -huh. say a you know a, a government system would love to get your, you know, what, what, what do you need to put to, to put together a, a, a framework that people can really work with? Yeah, so what, what we see is that there is one gigantic difference between annual statements, uh, or financial statement audits, and, and uh, algorithms, uh, which is the way that, that they are created, right? So uh, a financial statement is typically a, a quite a, a, a thorough, well-documented process. Um, and the controls are, are have mostly to do with, with traceability and um, with uh, being able to reconstruct exactly how uh, a certain uh, point of information entered that financial statement. Um, if you look at algorithms, they're typically developed in an agile process. And uh, that means that if you would try to apply similar uh, op operational procedures, um, you would probably kill innovation altogether. Uh, if you if you would ask a, a team building an algorithm to document everything and every decision that they made when they were building it, then there's no way that you can actually uh, keep the pace. Um, so you need to connect to the to the uh, controls that are already in the agile development methodology. Um, so, for example, the methodology has something like a definition of done, and what you put in the definition of done can be discussed and it can be associated with various types of risks. Um, and at the end of, a, of each sprint, you typically have product demos. So uh, you can adjust your product demos to make sure that you are also touching on all the risk areas that you need to touch on uh, at the right time. So there are all kinds of handles, I think, in the Agile methodology to make sure that they connect to uh, your risk management layer, so your second and your third layer uh, line line of defense. Um, now, to answer your question, that's different for every algorithm and every team, right? So at the moment, um, the data science and the development of algorithms is still quite immature, I would say. Um, there is no standardized approach, so everybody has developed their own implementation, and um, we see that back when we are when we are doing when we are building these kind of, uh, of control frameworks, because we need to really need to sit together with the teams, discuss with them how do you actually make sure that the algorithm is reliable, for example. How do you make sure that there is no unintended bias in the algorithm? And based on their answers, 
you can build the control objectives and you can build the operating procedures to actually make sure that these control objectives are met. Um, and that's different if it is a if it is a, an advanced algorithm, something with deep learning or uh, something with machine learning, uh, compared to a rule-based algorithm that on an individual level is explainable. So, um, and it's also different from team to team. If it is a team of three people that develops the algorithm, you see different procedures appearing than if it's a team of 30 people. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you that the, the standardization that, that is already there in uh, financial statements, uh, uh, control systems for uh, control framework for financial statements, that's not there yet for uh, algorithm development. I, I'm pretty sure that that it will go that way and, and it will mature and that there will be standardization at a certain point, at least far more than there is now. Um, but it will always be an agile way of working. So you will have different control, well, probably similar control objectives, but with different operating procedures to meet these controls. Uh, you know, as, as as you look forward, are uh, and these frameworks begin to be adopted. How do you see a uh, a company really, you know, whether they're being compelled or uh, voluntarily uh, disclosing that their you know that their that their AI or their analytics have been vetted? For, you know, for ethical concerns, um, you know, how do you see going forward? Whether uh, you know what what will be drivers of uh, uh, I would say of, of the adoption of ethical frameworks, and and also do you see uh, a role of a framework or you know or some sort of uh, verification that you know, that companies have gone through a process as important to a brand or important to financial auditors, for instance. I, I think it's, you've raised some really interesting points here because when you look at financial statements that have been audited by, you know, by a firm like KPMG or, or, or a, you know, a, one of the big four, you have a pretty good set, set of, con you can be pretty confident that, that those numbers have, have gone through a disciplined vetting process and for investors, then that's, I mean, that's, that becomes table stakes to really to trust that the numbers are, are accurate. But when you're dealing with uh, increasing automation of processes, you know, in an organization, uh, you know, how will there, do you, do you expect that there may be some sort of, uh, you know, certification that, that, for instance, in uh, insurance companies may require as a just as a part of risk management, or or would this even become a uh, an assertion that is a, a positive aspect of a brand, particularly in the uh, in the case of, of of the big internets, which uh, are there is a growing concern about the the impact of their algorithms as well. Yeah, the um, the answer I think is both. Um, so we we see this driven from two sides, right? On one hand, you see regulatory requirements appearing, um, especially, of course, now around privacy in Europe, you have the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, um, which is a, a, a very small subset of, of the control that we are talking about right here, but it's a start. Um, and uh, on the other hand, and that's for me is actually the most interesting one, and I was surprised by the adoption rate, uh, this is very much client-driven 
So it's exactly what you said. Um, clients are actually demanding uh, this, uh, these kind of statements from their providers. Um, we are working with the city of Amsterdam and uh, the, the CTO of the city of Amsterdam uh, already made a statement a couple of months ago that if you are a provider of an algorithm to the city of Amsterdam, they won't buy it anymore if you don't have an independent statement uh, from a, or a statement from an independent party that says that the algorithm is actually doing what you say it's doing. Um, so, and, and this adoption goes much faster, actually, than the regulatory part, because, of course, for the regulatory part, you have to have independent standards, um, which uh, takes a long time uh, to, to decide what these standards need to be and, and uh, how good it needs to be before you are compliant. Um, but from a client point of view, uh, it, it's much more flexible, and, and uh, individual clients will start asking for this, and if sufficient independent uh, clients start asking for this, then the providers will actually probably reverse that process. That's what you saw with data centers, for example. So if you want to store your data in a data center and it's, it doesn't have uh, uh, the right certification, nobody's actually storing their data in the data center. And um, the way that, that that appeared was the first there were individual clients who were asking for it, and when there were too many individual clients asking for their certifications, the data center said, well, let's just generalize this. We will make sure that we have this type of certification, and then you can all see that we've done our job properly. So that's actually what I expect here to happen as well. First, there will be major clients that will start asking for it. And then if sufficient clients have started to ask for it, and the companies will say, well, we are not going to do audits every time that you ask for it. So we will just do it once and we will have a standardized statement. And then that's the statement that you can trust. Are there any industries or particular use cases that you anticipate maybe uh, may, may lead the effort to, uh, you know, to be able to, to show validation of their, of their own, uh, I guess, of their own, their own processes? Um, so, uh, yeah, I think the city of Amsterdam is actually a very interesting one. I mean, one of the mm -hmm. reasons why I find it so fascinating is that usually uh, government is, is lagging a bit behind with developments around technology. Um, but with these things, uh, especially cities, they are uh, ahead of things because uh, they, are, they are worried about the digital rights of their citizens. And they are, of course, they are pretty close to their citizens, right? So they, 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 every day they notice on the streets what this does with their citizens. So they are in the, in the, on the forefront of these developments. And, um, for example, in the city of Amsterdam, there are various algorithms that are, that are really impactful. Um, there is a school selection algorithm, and, and every major city has the same issue, that uh, the popular schools are uh, all in high demand, so you cannot put everybody on the school that they want to go. And um, that means that you need some sort of placement algorithm. Uh, and then, of course, you get questions. Does the placement algorithm actually does do what it's supposed to do? Um, is there any bias in that? Um, how about uh, the mayor of the, of the city? Do the children of the mayor go through the same process? Or uh, is there some back door that they can use? These kind of questions, they pop up, right? And um, these are serious uh, uh, questions that need to be addressed by 
by the cities, and, and that's why they are on the forefront of this. Another example there is um, there is an algorithm that uh, in the city of Amsterdam that, that does, um, if, if you have any complaints about things that go wrong in the city, you can register that in various ways. Um, and then you can run an algorithm, and the algorithm identifies the complaints, uh, what, what is it about, and uh, where does it need to go, and how much priority do, do, does it need to get. And um, in principle, that sounds like quite an innocent algorithm. It's a natural language processing algorithm. But if you think about it a bit longer, then there's all kinds of trickiness in there. For example, um, the, the, the areas in the city of Amsterdam that complain most are the better parts of town, uh, which is maybe something that is unexpected, but uh, it's true. So um, that means that there is a tendency to bias the better parts of town, and they are already better than, than the rest of the town. Uh, also, the complaints that are coming from the better parts of town, they are written in a language that is better understandable by the natural language processing algorithm. So the, the uh, identification and the ranking of these complaints uh, goes better than uh, the, the ranking and the identification of the problems coming from the, uh, the other areas of, of Amsterdam. And that also leads to a biased tendency. And you need to compensate for that to make sure uh, that, that the algorithm remains fair in its assessment of priority and of area. So um, even algorithms where, where you use in, in the beginning thing, what can go wrong with that? If you think about it a little bit harder, um, there, are, there are quite a few tricky elements in there. That's a that's a fantastic example, and uh, I, I think you you make a great point too. That if you if certainly government is not always the most advanced in terms of adopting technologies, but but being able to uh, require that uh, that vendors and 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 people comply with policy, I think is you know that's a certainly a a, a very efficient way to to ensure that that adopt proceeds. Um, I'd be interested also to get your perspective on some of the the, the broader efforts to establish a, uh, a future ethical framework for, I mean, I know we've been talking about algorithms and, and very practical near-term AI, but as you look a little bit further out, uh, there's there have been some you know, high-profile concerns about the impact of uh, what happens when artificial general intelligence uh, emerges if you know if it in fact does and and then what should be an appropriate uh, set of ethics or principles for uh, governing for instance autonomous systems in warfare and uh, and and other you know critical life or death decisions and and there's uh, uh, the 23 Asilomar principles I think provide at least a, a starting point there, but would love to get your perspective on the uh, the relevance of, of, of that type of effort, uh, at least to, you know, to, to, the, uh, to, the, to the broader perception of AI and, and also whether there are, are lessons or, or, or useful uh, insights, you know, from those types of efforts that can apply to, uh, you know, to companies and organizations that are much more concerned with, with the here and now. Yeah, so um, in turn, if I start talking about general AI, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody that is a, 
a big fan of talking about it. It's not that I think that it will never appear, but for me, it's it's still a bridge too far to consider the consequences about that. Um, I remember a phrase that that one of my colleagues once uh, uh, said, which was, um, "People worry about." Uh, algorithms uh, being too smart and, and going to impact their lives in ways beyond their imagination, where the real problem is that algorithms are too stupid and they are already impacting our life beyond their imagination. So um, I, I, I think that that's sort of the, um, the situation we are in right now. Um, having said that, uh, giving you a couple of examples of, of why I think that, that we are still far away Away from a situation where where AI is uh, is going to to be meaningful in a broad sense of the word, um, let's take the definition of success. Right, uh, one of the greatest celebrations of of artificial intelligence over the last couple of years was, of course, the the AlphaGo uh, machine that uh, defeated the Go player, uh, developed by DeepMind, and. Um, if you think about it in terms of the definition of success, uh, that's a really easy one. Because in, in, in a game, uh, the success is if you win the game. And uh, the, uh, if, you, if you lose the game, you don't have success. So it, it's a black-white decision, and it's very easy to, to measure. Um, Real-life cases that you already mentioned yourself, like how do you select the best candidate? And you have to give a definition of the best candidate. Uh, then it becomes very, very tricky because what is the best candidate? And if you cannot give a proper definition of the best candidate, how can I translate that into objective requirements? So if you cannot do that, then basically your best next step to take is uh, is to take historical data and look at how humans make those decisions. But then, of course, you you are, are getting in a tricky area because... Uh, you already know that the decisions of these humans have not been perfect either. Um, so you need to think about all kinds of criteria that you need to filter out. And and then the question is, how are you going to filter them out? Because some of them um, might actually be appropriate. So, so these kind of discussions, I think, uh, show that we are still a long way of, of understanding how AI would work uh, in a, if you're calling if you're talking about general AI. Uh, I wrote a blog for the World Economic Forum a while back, and where we were discussing empathy. Uh, can AI ever uh, contain empathy? And then uh, you can, of course, have different interpretations of, of what empathy is. If, if empathy means uh, it needs to listen very carefully and it needs to uh, have a good understanding of what you're saying and respond in meaningful answers, etc then it's just an evolution of what's already going on, I think. But if empathy means that in some cases you have to go against rules and regulations because uh, it's inhumane to actually take the decision according to rules and regulations, then it becomes a very different discussion. And it's already in the word inhumane, right? I mean, AI is not human, so it also doesn't understand what inhumane is. Um, and I think then... then it becomes very hard to even define what we mean with inhumane, and then putting it in another black box uh, makes it even more tricky. We had a situation here a while back in the Netherlands with a couple of Armenian kids uh, that uh, applied for asylum here in the Netherlands, and um, they were denied. Uh, their application was denied, um, but they lived here their entire lives, and then they had to be sent back 
uh, to Armenia, where they never lived before. Um, and the question was, uh, are we going to do that? Are we actually going to send these kids back? These were Dutch kids. And the, the, the general consensus of uh, Dutch society was that this is inhumane, so they should stay here in the Netherlands. But according to every rule in the book, they should go back. So the ministry, the minister eventually turned back that decision. Uh, so then my question is, can we expect AI to turn back those decisions? That's a very difficult uh, definition and they're, they're a very difficult direction to, to follow. Um, so uh, yeah, I would like to keep it closer to, to here and now. And, and um, then basically I'm thinking about uh, how, how do we deal with the definition of success? Uh, Kathy O'Neill is a, uh, somebody that we work a lot with. Uh, she wrote the preface in my book. Um, and uh, she has developed something called the ethical risk matrix, uh, which gives you some handles on uh, what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. But it still puts a lot of responsibility on the organization itself. So as an organization, in the end, you have to decide for you what the limits are, because there is no general consensus on what these limits are. Well, that's been a really interesting discussion. Fascinating. Um, I'd like to ask, you know, one final question is uh, if you could just share your, your final thoughts on, on the outlook for the, you know, for the work that you're doing on the, uh, on the, the, the progress of an ethical framework and, and what you're optimistic about. And also if you could share any resources that uh, our listeners could, uh, could access for, for with, further interest for, uh, to learn more about uh, the, the work that you're doing. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so I think the outlook for me is that, that in the years that are coming, um, we will actually see some sort of a, a short cycled uh, approach to developing the, the ethical standards if you want. And, and the reason that I think this is going to be a short cycle is I don't expect any government to come up with a holistic uh, standard framework or any organization to do that. So what's probably going to happen is that there's going to be incidents. Uh, the incidents are going to go to court. Uh, then there's a judge that is actually going to assess, for example, who is responsible in a, in a chain of uh, AI decisions, right? Is it the person that, that built the algorithm? Or is it the person that, that put it in the device that you're using? Or is it the user of the device? Or or all a little bit, um, which is interesting in itself because um, I talked to a few judges and they said, well, we at the moment actually not, we are not equipped to make that decision. So we also need to get additional knowledge and additional capabilities. And we need to think about what kind of information we need before we can actually take those, make those decisions. And then when, when with case law, actually these boundaries are, are put there, some of these boundaries might not be consistent with what we as a society think uh, that is needed. And then politics will probably step in and, and put corrections in place so that, they, that it meets our standards. And this will go on for, for a decade or so. And then after a decade, we get close to a regulatory framework or a, a compliance framework um, that is uh, more generally accepted. That's, that's the way I think uh, this will go. Um, in terms of uh, my, my research head, we are actually doing a lot of research into 
Um, what does it actually mean when you claim that, uh, that uh, news is uh, spreading hatred? And uh, what do you mean when you say, make the statement that news is true or false? Um, because these notions are also subjective often. Um, so that's an interesting part of research. And the most interesting part I myself, I find uh, the expectation management part. Because um, you need to ex not only explain what an algorithm does, and probably you don't even need to explain it. Uh, that's the example we gave with the pack of milk. But what you do need to explain is uh, how much a person can trust an algorithm. But that, that's never going to be 100%. So you can make a statement that says, we have not been able to identify any flaws in this algorithm. Which doesn't mean that it's never going to cause any, uh, any, any harm. And if it does cause any harm, then um, you know, basically people will have a negative experience with, with, uh, with, with such an algorithm and with the statements around uh, the reliability of that algorithm, which in turn leads to reputation damage, eventually brand damage, and maybe even distrust. So, so this is something that is in the area of explainability that we really need to start tackling in the next few years. How do you manage expectations, not only around the performance of algorithms, but also around the statements that are made on the reliability or the performance of such algorithms? Um, yeah. And uh, you have a couple of books uh, that, are, that are available um any uh i guess we'll we'll include yeah. links to we'll, we'll include links to that in the in the show notes as well um yeah yeah you were you were asking about uh, any any resources for for further uh, information and uh, yeah of course uh, i should pl plug my own two books so, uh, the one about big data and, and and how it impacts our life we are big data from uh, 2015, and recently, a couple of months ago, I published uh, Building Trust in a Smart Society, which also dives into the details of, of how this mechanism, trust mechanism works, and it's associated to, to a couple of uh, uh, organizational measures that you can take in terms of modular, modularity, agility, decentralization, uh, that contributes to, to uh, trustworthy ways of developing algorithms and decision-making. And of course, I shouldn't forget uh, Kathy's book, Weapons of Math Destruction. Uh, as I said, Kathy and, and us are working together quite closely. And I think that's a useful dimension uh, on the topic as well, because she dives more into the ethical elements, the ethical consequences, and, and how you should deal with those. Those are terrific recommendations, and I uh, look forward to getting them on my reading list. So, so anyway, this has been Ed McGuire, uh, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners. We've been speaking with Professor Sander Klaus, uh, who is uh, a professor of big data ecosystems at the University of Amsterdam and a partner in charge of big data and analytics at KPMG in the Netherlands. Uh, thank you uh, once again for a, uh, a terrifically informative conversation. Uh, I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners 
with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.